If you weren't paying attention before the pandemic, chances are you are now. There's an alarming new CDC survey of high school students finding 42% of them feel sadness or hopelessness and describe it as persistent. Among black adolescents, we see suicide attempts leaping 80%, outpacing every other ethnic group. And you can see related statistics around uh, uh, visits to emergency rooms for self-harm, around increases in antidepressant use. Um, There's hardly a category you can find related to mental health and mental well-being that has not spiked. The headlines are stark, but people who work with youth and study mental health have seen this coming for years. Brett Zoromsky has partnered with schools from Ohio to California helping implement tools proven to avert the mental health crisis plaguing American youth. When the researcher and associate professor of school counseling walks into a school, he scans the scene. One of the things that I look for is like, whose head is on the desk? Who's the one that everybody ignores? Who's the one that's apathetic and checked out uh, the most hopeless? Because that's the lowest level. That person doesn't see a way and doesn't feel like they can accomplish achieving that thing. That thing might be going to college or getting a meaningful job, graduating from high school or simply having friends who understand them, feeling like they belong and have something to contribute. For a growing number of youth, however, hopelessness, depression, sadness, distress, whatever name you want to put on it, have become persistent conditions. A report released in February by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention spells it out. One of the things that this report highlights is clearly the impact of the pandemic. It showed in a decade between 2011 and 2021 that there's been a 58% increase in feelings of sadness or hopelessness for our students that identify as female. We're really able to show through this survey that they give the Youth Risk Behavior Survey significant increases in a variety of areas for girls, much more than boys. Antoinette Miranda is a professor of school psychology and chair of Ohio State's Department of Teaching and Learning. And they particularly looked at girls in LGBTQ and saw these significant increases in sadness and depression and attempting suicides. And one of the articles called it that, a real crisis with our young women, young girls and women in K-12 education. I think it really is one that mental health professionals need to pay attention to, but more importantly, K-12 schools need to pay attention to at a time when there is a lot of legislation that is trying to squash the very thing that would help many of these girls. None of these problems are new. If anything, experts say the pandemic threw gasoline onto a fire that has been building for years. If there is a silver lining, though, some experts say, it's that we know how to fix it. Tackling mental health challenges of Americans' youth requires leaders to have the will to act decisively. Teaching educators how to give students hope and making schools a place where kids feel they truly belong. If you do that, your D's and F's are going to be reduced. Your grades are going to go up. Graduation rates are going to go up. Absences are going to go down. College enrollment rates are going to go up. We have this from the research. It's not like this is a guessing game. Like, is this going to matter? This is the Ohio State University Inspire podcast. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Megan Beery is our student intern. Inspire is a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology.
The greatest problems facing today's youth are not the problems faced by their parents. Teen pregnancy has gone down. Cigarette smoking by teens is at an all-time low. And young people are drinking less than their parents did. According to a New York Times report last December, the risks teens and preteens face now are more internal than external. The pandemic exacerbated issues like anxiety and depression that have been bubbling up for years. Assistant Professor Rhodesia McMillian is a co-principal investigator of a $5.2 million grant led by Associate Professor Scott Graves. It will provide more mental health services to students and Columbus City Schools, the first step to addressing the problem there. Why did you apply for that grant? Dr. Graves and I applied for this grant um, from the uh, U.S. Department of Education because of the increasing need for mental health services for our school-age children. And what he and I saw is that the coronavirus had a significant impact on the mental and emotional health of adults alone. So similarly, our children or students, they were not shielded from those stressors of the pandemic. And so now that COVID-19 has uh, subsided in many ways, um, we're beginning to see the full weight of the pandemic. And uh, we've seen a significant increase in the need for interventions that address the social, emotional, and behavioral health of our students. And this funding will provide us with the ability to fund graduate students to also help um, provide these services. I'm curious as to how um, were you seeing those outcomes of COVID-19? Were you actually in the schools seeing that or were these things being reported to you from psychologists in the field? Dr. Graves and I both are very involved in the practitioner side. It's in addition to me being uh, an academic, I am still a school psychologist. Are you actually working as a school psychologist within Columbus schools at the same time concurrently as you are a professor at Ohio State? Yeah. So I only do 10 hours a week and and that seems like it's a lot, but I'm genuinely motivated by the needs of our community and by the needs of our students. Everything that I do, whether it's being a researcher or being a practitioner, is student-centered. And I would be remiss if I did not lend my support to Columbus City Schools. And so, yes, it's 10 hours a week, but it's, it's enough. And it's enough to make, to make a small impact. And so I see firsthand um, what our students are grappling with. In um, Columbus, personally, I've seen an increase in students who are um, experiencing homelessness. Our students are reflections of what they are experiencing in their households, what they're experiencing in their communities. And so everything that we see going on in our communities um, around us, you know, our students are seeing that and experiencing that as well. This project proposes to partner with 10 high-need pre-K through um, eighth grade elementary and middle grade schools. We estimate that this grant will service approximately like 4,500 students each year of the grant project. That's significant because one of the biggest barriers to helping students cope is the extreme shortage of school psychologists, school counselors, and school social workers. Ohio, for example, has just one school psychologist for every 1,084 students. 
the recommended ratio is 1 to 500. More psychologists and practitioners will allow more one-on-one, more group sessions dealing with anxiety and depression, and more care. We can talk them through social-emotional light learning opportunities, how to cultivate healthy relationships, or how to meander um, the school climate, or how do you manage the expectations of school while perhaps dealing with certain stressors, you know, from home. And so as a school psychologist, it's it's more than just providing a mentorship or things of that nature. We are trained professionals to be able to um, guide those students through difficult life experiences. In many ways, the pandemic has forced the issue. Some leaders have begun to prioritize the mental health of our nation's children. Federal grants like McMillian's and Graves are one indicator. Education reform policy is shifting. We see that provisions are being made at the federal level uh, with an increase um, in school psychologists, counselors, and social workers. We see that in federal legislation, but it's not enough. We still need uh, state education agencies and local education agencies to make specific policy shifts, um, such as creating wraparound programming programming with agencies and community partners that help students to get housing, food, and medical attention. Schooling is not what it used to be. We need all hands on deck. Last year, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine launched a program that provided behavioral health care to 16,000 low-income children. Other states, from Texas to Pennsylvania, have initiated similar programs. But for some of the nation's kids, getting mental health support has been a one-step-forward, three-steps-back ordeal. One of the CDC's most alarming findings was about the mental health of LGBTQ students, 25% of whom attempted suicide during the past year. The survey did not account for transgender youth. But Antoinette Miranda also serves on Ohio's State Board of Education and recently heard testimony to ban gender-inclusive bathrooms. In 2022, there were 315 discriminatory anti-LGBTQ bills proposed across the United States, of which 29 passed into law. Already in 2023, we have 340 anti-LGBTQ bills, many of them targeting transgender. So we have conservative legislators spending an enormous amount of time on a group that is less than 1.6% of the population in the United States. And while some groups argue that girls aren't safe in bathrooms where transgender girls can enter, 14% of all females surveyed by the CDC said they had been forced to have sex. The first increase in 10 years. And I was really struck by the fact that we're focused on that when girls in general are experiencing sexual assault by boys. No legislation has been proposed to protect and offer support to sexually assaulted female students. Meanwhile, the mental health of LGBTQ youth is at a critical low. We already know that LGBTQ and transgender reports higher levels of suicide, higher mental health issues, homelessness, etc. 
We've already seen that spike in the state of Ohio that after this resolution was passed by the State Board of Education, their mental health needs have increased because there's a feeling that you're being targeted, that you're being bullied, that um, people are seeing you as less than. So it's no surprise that the mental health issues have increased. And so I think our focus on certain groups is out of whack. What steps do you think need to be taken to help? Well, one of the things that a lot of them talk about is making sure there's there's mental health services in the schools. And that means making sure you have counselors that are available, school psychologists that are available in the school. School connectedness is really important. With the pandemic, I think there's been a sense of many of our teens, regardless of whether you're girl, boy, LGBTQ, that there's a loss of connectedness in schools. Students felt disconnected. They didn't have available to them trusted adults who could be mentors and be able to go to counselors. Those schools, as they come back from the pandemic, are really having to try to put in place this school connectedness and making sure that students feel accepted, that there's positive culture and climate that's occurring in the schools. School connectedness. Brett Zaromsky calls it school belonging. The CDC describes it as students feeling that adults and peers in their schools care about them as individuals, not just about their learning. For kids to work through mental health problems, their schools need to become a haven, a community of support and belonging. But that's not what most schools are emphasizing post-pandemic, Zaromsky says. Do you think that the pandemic might have made us finally look at this and as a priority instead of as something we might get to if we have enough money and time. If you look at a district improvement plan or a school improvement plan for almost any school district around this country, the first two things you're going to see are like math and reading. When I would go around the country and I work with different districts, I'm paying attention to what happens during the pandemic and after the pandemic, as far as where are they investing their money, where are they investing their time, where are they investing with their training, with their teachers and their staff. And if the focus is entirely on math and reading and credit recovery, then I worry about the kids. It sounds to me like it definitely starts with leadership. You have to have a superintendent who, and probably even a school board, who are behind this. When the state is saying, we're going to do standardized testing every single year, and your math and reading scores are what you're going to get awarded or penalized for, to have a school board and a superintendent say, and we're going to impact those math and reading scores by focusing on the mental health and the holistic success for our students through executive functioning, not cognitive skills, social emotional learning. That's going to be our core focus. I mean, that's transformative. If our students aren't really gaining and, and retaining what we're doing in our core classes because they're struggling with these mental health issues, then this is priority one to help take care of those mental health issues. It's not like seat time. We need engaged seat time. We can extend the school day at summer school, but if our kids aren't engaged during the time that they're at school, none of that will matter. And so what we're really trying to do is is create engaged students who can learn. Uh, And so if we don't have engaged students who can learn, then they can sit in your class all day and frustrate you. And it's not really going to change anything. So to me, it's it's really changing the culture of schools to where we all understand the impact and the power of this work. And we embrace it together and we kind of move forward together on this. So how do schools and communities do that? What do you mean exactly when you talk about school belonging? When we greet our students at the front door with their names, like that's the first step towards school belonging. That's not school belonging by itself. Like that's what we should do minimally. And then we need to create an environment where the focus is on creating community uh, and belonging. 
And so for adolescents in the school, it's, it's really relationships with the peers, relationships with the teachers, and then an overall feeling towards the school. So if you kind of think of those three areas, it's like, I got my peer relationships. I'm really excited to go see my friends or see somebody at school. I got teachers who I feel like they actually know me by name. They want to see me every day. Um, they care whether I'm missing or there, and they care about me as a person. But the teacher relationship is really, really the core of this. Teachers who are good at this know their students very well and celebrate the uniqueness of each child. They don't just model acceptance encouragement, but intentionally build it into the class culture, the activities, the lessons. They bridge home and school by engaging families, especially those of marginalized students like multilingual learners. They incorporate traditions that make students feel grounded and included. School belonging, feeling safe at home, having at least two adults to talk to who aren't your parents, even those community and religious traditions, experts call those positive childhood experiences, and they are a subcategory of another set of buffers called protective factors. Google them, because all of these work like a kind of anti-venom against adverse childhood experiences, all the bad stuff that kids encounter. And the pandemic was certainly adverse. The research is extensive, so broad around the way that those protective factors can buffer mental health issues, lead to academic success, lead to a reduction in arrests, actually, in substance abuse. There's just a wide, wide range of research that shows a lot of mental, behavioral, social health outcomes from having protective factors. It's why schools from Pickerington, Ohio, to Wyneme, California, have put an emphasis on school belonging as part of their strategy to improve kids' mental health. Back to the kid face down on the desk. If that child feels like they are part of something larger, a community, they are more likely to engage and to strive. We know this. But we also know if they are LGBTQ or homeless or multilingual, that can be harder to achieve. Those kids need extra support. Those wraparound resources that Rhodesia McMillian talked about. But to battle their mental health challenges, Zoromsky says, all kids need something more. And that is hope. Hope. We haven't really talked about hope. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you how do you give a kid hope? I mean, it's not you, like you can hand it to them on a platter. Oh, it's so exciting. Dr. Chan Hellman and Casey Gwynn wrote a book called Hope Rising. Anybody can get it. It's great. Um, and, and basically hopes the belief that your future can be brighter and better than your past. And this is their words, by the way. Uh, you actually have a role to play in making your life better. So the research around hope is, is robust. I hopped online to take the hope score test then read about Hellman, the co-author, who himself was homeless in high school. Certain people encouraged him to set goals, map out a plan, and then made him feel capable of doing it. He earned a PhD in psychology and then eventually began researching how hope can transform anyone. Zoromsky is a total groupie, especially given the science behind hope, and speaks all over the country about how to cultivate hope among sad and distressed kids. There's even research that shows when people get to law school that hope is a better predictor of law school success than LSAT scores. Bingo. Just what the kid face planted on the desk needs to hear. A quote in the book by Rick Snyder resonates with Zaromsky. You can get there from here. That phrase is, is just, to me, it, 
it's so encouraging. You can get there from here because what he's saying is that you have pathways. Let's explore those pathways and then you can do it. If you think about what agency is that willpower, it's cheerleaders. Someone has to say, not only here are all the pathways for you to get to that post-secondary option that you want to do, whether that be career or four-year college or trade, whatever. This is what you've decided you want to do, your passion areas, but you can do this. Even in higher ed, I think about how many of the students uh, in our program, whether it's a master's program or a doc student that says, My, I, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, you can do this. You, got, you have to go do this, this program because you're going to be great at that. And that, that little boost is, is enough sometimes to push somebody to achieve. It's a, that, that's willpower. You have a reframe of your willpower. So how, how important is that that teachers, counselors, uh, administrators do that for kids? Is that happening enough? No. I mean, it's not happening enough. I think because we haven't been teaching it. Our administrators aren't learning it, our teachers aren't learning it, our school counselors aren't learning it, to be honest. So we need to make sure that everybody is learning about the power of hope um, and that we're getting it into all of our schools. Again, it should be in every district improvement plan, school improvement plan, it should be measured for every student. Um, And then you should have interventions that are particularly focused on building hope for all of our kids. We know that it matters from elementary school all the way through college. So take heart. We can get there from here. We know what to do. Tear a page out from the book of Chan Hellman or Rick Snyder or from Rhodesia McMillian, whose hope score is nearly perfect. She draws inspiration from the high schoolers she sees each week. Not only am I the the type of researcher, but I'm the type of human being that sees the glass as half full. The numbers are startling. The numbers are startling. Um, But because I am around um, adolescents a lot, you know, there's still hope. To see a list of proven protective factors compiled by Ohio State counselor education doctoral students, and to see strategies for schools by the college's Center on Education and Training for Employment, to bolster family engagement, thereby building school belonging. See the links in our episode notes.